Hello, church. Welcome to our midweek devotional. We're going to read off Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that it is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make them known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're going to sing about this mystery, the mystery, the hope of glory that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this moment, Father, that we could sing together as a church through online. We, we yearn for the moment that we could sing together again, but we know it's coming, Father, and we thank you for that. But for now, Lord, we worship you from home, the office, or whatever it is that the church is watching this stream. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us sing, church. Come behold the wondrous mystery In the dawning of the King He the theme of heaven's praises Rolled in frail humanity In our longing, in our darkness Now the light of life has come Look to Christ who condescended To come flesh to ransom us mystery he the perfect son of man in his living in his suffering never trace nor stain of sin see the true and better Adam come to save the hell of our man Christ the great and sure fulfillment the law in him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners, hands the Lamb in Christ 
resurrected as we will be when he comes. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes who oh lord could save themselves their own soul Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. Who, oh Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper. You alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us, let us out of death. To you alone belongs the highest praise. You
to you alone belongs the highest praise. To you alone belongs the highest praise. Amen. To you alone belongs the highest praise because he is God Almighty. Uh, read with me in Exodus chapter 34. Read with me what we've been studying throughout these last weeks. Chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, the Word of God says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Once again, welcome back to our Thursday night Bible study in English. We are glad that you've been connecting with us and learning with us throughout this entire time, especially on God's attributes. And though we haven't gotten into the details of God's attributes, what we are discussing is the introduction to this study of God, the study of theology, knowing who God is and how he desires to be known. That is our mission in this moment. That is what we desire to do and accomplish, ultimately to bring us to a greater sense of God, a greater understanding of who we are before God, and therefore provoking authentic, heartfelt, spirit-led worship to the great God. So as we've been going through this introduction on studying God, we've, we've come across a, a good understanding of how God desires to be known and shown throughout his creation. It is also shown throughout scripture. And here, as we continue with the same thought as we have throughout these last weeks, we see that Moses, once again, after his encounter on the mountain where God gives him the law and Moses petitions God for a revelation of his glory, the full essence of his glory, we see in this brief verse, in these brief verses, that God reveals himself the way he desires to be known. For instance, some important elements here as we can read from verses 6, he says twice, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, back to back, twice. This is highlighting something very important. As we'll see in this context, but as we will explore this possibly next week, this name of Yahweh or the name of the Lord, I am that I am, is very important for our understanding of how God presents himself. In this context, it is highlighting God's sovereign lordship and his sovereign power. Ultimately, this comes, this sovereign lordship comes from his moral character as it is revealed within these brief verses. For instance, we get here a concept of God is merciful, God is gracious, and God abounds in steadfast love. That's what God is. That's who he is and how he revealed himself. This is, as a matter of fact, God's word to Moses. It, 
It isn't Moses' words about God. It is God speaking directly to Moses and revealing himself in this way. As we spoke a bit uh, last week, it's a, it's a metaphor. There are an, an analogies of who God is, and sometimes they're used in human characteristics and human emotions in order for us to understand God. And all, although anthropomorphic language is, is limiting, uh, it helps us know and understand God, but it isn't the ultimate way we know him. However, here, God gives us this understanding using these words like merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love to show us who he is and to show Moses specifically how he wants to be known. And so his power is reflected in the greatness of God. For instance, here, the, the power and the ability to forgive sin as well as punish sin for multiple generations. But ultimately, this justice and power stems from his moral character of love. God loves, and so far, he shows himself merciful. And so he forgives because he is a loving God. And this highlights the goodness of God along with his mercy and grace. So this is who God is in a very important factor within this beautiful uh, section of Scripture. It is God revealing himself to Moses the way he wants to be known. And this is rather what we will see throughout the study of Scripture. Scripture gives us these indications. Scripture guides us to know God the way he wants to be known. So this passage becomes very key to our understanding of knowing and of the knowledge of God. Moses was allowed to see in part, but not even Moses was able to see all, not able to see the complete essence of God. This is what Moses asked for. This is what Moses was yearning for. This is what Moses really wanted. But this full revelation of God's essence wasn't given to him. Would, it, would that be the only catalyst for us to give ourselves or for Moses to give himself in complete devotion and obedience? I don't think that's the case. And so we know that's not the case because God says, no, I will not show you the complete essence of myself. And we read that and we know that God passed by Moses and didn't show his full glory by the back parts or his back was able to be seen which were glimpses uh, the fringe of of God's person and God's essence so Moses himself though he asked genuinely wasn't able to seek the complete essence of God and so what we get from this is whatever God does provide Whatever essence God does manifest is enough, is suffice, should be more than enough to provoke worship, to promote doxology. This is what God gives. This is how he shows himself. And so we, with the little glimpses that we do get, should be moved in our hearts and in our spirits to worship. 
But this complete essence of God also highlights an important factor in that we cannot see that now it isn't available to be perceived by us now, but is within our eschatological hope. Though we can't see it now completely, and the biblical writers would would argue that one day we will see it, though we, we may not ever see it, but what we do get in the Bible is the hope, this hope of one day we might be able to stand before God and see it completely. For example, in 1 Timothy, if we turn our Bible over to the New Testament, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there. Until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now keep going in verse 15. Which he will display at the proper time. He who is is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We'll stop there. Paul anticipates that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see the revelation of God in Christ. He said that in Colossians and in Ephesians. Uh, But it's not now. It's later. And this is the day of hope. It's an eschatological hope that we will one day be able to stand before and see God's glory. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, chapter 13, verse 12, he says, For now we see a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as as I have been fully known. So Paul understands that at the moment, a high theologian like Paul or a high uh, understanding and concept of God in the mind of Paul, even he can't see him completely. And so therefore he brings in these metaphors and analogies of the mirror dimly. We can't see it completely now, but we will be able to see it later or then, as Paul says. What this what, what this highlights here, again, is a level where the Christian, the son and daughter of, of God, shouldn't live in a frustrated manner. Shouldn't live as always striving to see God as many have claimed to have seen him in visions or in dreams. And some people have written bestsellers of moments in heaven or 90 minutes in heaven and and though they've claimed it uh, it's not the reality Moses himself couldn't have seen it and so therefore we shouldn't live frustrated lives striving to see God for it is what he has provided us that in itself will provoke the worship we need so what we understand here is God himself is incomprehensible, 
but he is not unknowable. Let me say that again. God is incomprehensible, but he is not unknowable. God's riches and, and his glory and, and everything about God, it, it may never be known to us. And it's incomprehensible to us even now. But he is not unknowable. We can know him. There is some room for mystery in our daily walk with God. Uh, see, I understood the, the faults of, of theologians and the frustrations of, of, of people in the church against the theological world where theologians at times can present um, complete uh, frameworks of who God is and no, this is how God is and, and it can't, and he's, he, he's within these parameters and, and we can say it, we know it, we've studied it. And I understand the frustration because at times it feels like we've come to a complete understanding of the person of God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There is wiggle room. There is room for mystery. Not too much because God does show, show us some parameters within, within, his, uh, within his word and within scripture. But there is levels of mystery. For example, uh, the mystery of the Trinity. For example, the mystery of the, our miraculous salvation. Why did God choose me? For example, the mystery of how God's presence is with us as we, in a tangible way, as we, as we partake in the communion or in the Lord's Supper. There's mysteries all over the place. We don't fully understand it. Paul says it himself in Romans chapter 11. This isn't a complete knowledge of God. There is some room for mystery. But this also isn't agnosticism. Agnosticism, which teaches that one can't know the existence of God in any particular way. So then why try? It's almost one step away from atheism, which says there is no God. Uh, so it's not that. It's mysterious. God is mysterious, but also very much known through what he has provided. We know God exists and we know how he is to a certain extent because God is not silent. That's why we come to God's word day in and day out as you and I should be doing every day. So when we read his word, we find out this divine accommodation and there's that theological term again, accommodation, which which means and implies God lowers himself to children as a mother or father lower themselves to children to speak to them at their level. We could understand, we could comprehend because God speaks to us in our language. He accommodates himself to us and shows us who he is. This absolute knowledge of God we may never have, but we do have relative knowledge of God, which is perfect. And it's perfect because it is revealed in Scripture. The knowledge of God we do have is God's gift towards us. It is what he has given to us as a gift because he has shown it to us for himself. And so it's communicated through his word and knowing God then does not limit God. There, there's 
there's some uh, people that want to uh, slow this down and say, well, no, we, we can't do theology and we shouldn't do theology or do attributes of God because then that would make God small and we'll condense God into our own framework or into our own way of, of thinking or in our own mind, the way we can build them. But that doesn't mean God becomes limited. I do understand that there is moments where people do have that limitation on God and say this is how he is, separate from Scripture. Uh, so that is limiting. But what the Word of God teaches us makes God all that much bigger, all that much more mysterious, and at the same time gives us information about who he is. And so therefore we understand it, and it doesn't become limited. It, God is limitless, and we know that because Scripture teaches this to us. So what we have to come to an understanding here then, I like how the Belgic Confession of Faith of 1561 rather summarizes this point. This is one of the Reformed Confessions of the 16th century. And it's Article 2, and the second part of the Article 2 it says, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life, for God's glory and for our salvation. So whatever it is that we need to know about God for, for God's glory and for our salvation is perfectly spoken about in Scripture, in his divine word. This is what God wanted us to know about him. And I can't stress that enough because when we get into the, the, the theological frameworks of, of society, this will be all blurred in, in, the, in, in their framework and in process theology and in open theism and in pluralism. All of this stuff will be, will, will be you know, up for, up for grabs and there won't be some clear definition on who God is because in like the process theologians would claim God is always evolving. And so that, that's not what we're arguing here. Everything that we see from God for us, for our salvation and for his glory is perfectly defined and depicted in his word. If you want to look that up, it's the Belgic Confession of Faith of 1561. Article number two. Uh, I, I read this story in a wonderful systematic, reform systematic theology about a child. And I love this, the, this, this analogy here where a child visits the ocean for the first time in his life. And that child goes up to the water, to the, right on the, uh, where the water meets the sand. And, and the child dips his feet in the, in the, in the water. And, and this two, three-year-old will automatically say, it, it, it's wet. It, it, that's the only thing that comes to mind at that moment. And then, like a typical two to three-year-old, that he will bend over and put his hand in the water and, then bring it to his face or to his mouth and taste the water, and he'll say, salty. Uh, and, and then that child may be inquisitive and look up and, and, and look around and look at the panoramic view of the ocean if he's on the west coast or on the east coast, and, and will say, big. And, and using these, these chi childlike words, he describes the ocean. 
And obviously, he, he or she does not know the vastness of the ocean. He's not able to describe the full extent of the depths of the ocean or can even see it in its entirety. He doesn't understand that the, the, the same tides of the ocean are the ones that clean the ocean. He doesn't understand the elements, the, 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 the particular temperature changes that happen and, and how that works. He, they don't understand any of that, but... They know that it's salty, that it's wet, and that it's big. And, and, and so for the child, that is true. And that child is saying a truth about the ocean. None of us would argue that because that's all we at times know. And, and so when we compare that childlike viewpoint of the ocean by using childlike language, we come to a humble understanding of how we stand at the coast of theology, looking up to God and seeing just a glimpse of who he wants to show us, of, who he wants to re of how much he wants to reveal of himself. And though we can come to scripture and, and, and claim his omnipresence and his glory and his holiness and his and his awesome love, and all of that is a wonderful depiction of the greatness of God, it is still like the child on the sand looking up to the vastness of the ocean. We can never describe it completely. We will never be able to do so. What does that do for us? It keeps us humble. It keeps us understanding how small we are before a great God. Let's take a look again at, at 1 Timothy. In the same book that we were just reading, in chapter 1, Paul highlights the moral character of God through the redemptive power of Christ. Let me read to you several verses here in 1 Timothy. This is very important. From chapters 12, I mean, from chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithfully, faithful, appointed me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul here first thanks the Lord for allowing him to be at his service. Look at verse 12 again. I thank him who has given me strength. He allowed him to do the ministry of the word. And in this case now, he's handing that ministry over to Timothy. And this was done... This 
trust that the Lord had over Paul's life was done because Christ our Lord, as Paul says, was merciful, gracious, and we have the familiar concept of long-suffering, which Paul uses, pisteos and agapes, which is faith and love. And so merciful, gracious, long-suffering, or faithful and loving, it's the same reflection that we read back in Exodus chapter 34. This is God once again, but now in the life of Paul. He is merciful, gracious, and full of faithfulness and love in spite of Paul's past. Look at back at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, prosecutor, and insolent opponent. Remember, Paul was heavily against the Christian life and against those who called themselves Christians. On this backdrop, on this history, on this resume, God, through Jesus Christ and the redemptive power of the cross in Jesus, saves Paul. And he highlights it further as he, as he comes to this understanding in verse 15 that, that Christ, Jesus, comes into the world to save sinners. Save sinners like Paul. Save sinners like you and me. This is because God is merciful. This is because God is gracious. This is because God is faithful and loving. And so therefore, this God that is merciful, faithful, loving, and gracious deserves ultimate adoration and thanksgiving. If you read the first, the first words in verse 12, I thank him. If you go down to verse 17, we see this. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is worship. This is adoration. Again, friends, theology, doxology, deeper theology, higher doxology. We're going to repeat that time and time again in order for us to really come to an understanding of why we're doing what we're doing and why studying God is so important. When he ends the, the, the small letter in chapter 6, if you turn a couple of pages, this understanding of adoration and thanksgiving is even more provoked. In, verse, in chapter 6, verses 15, we read, Which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone, he, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him... Be honor and eternal dominion. That is the closing song. That is what Paul understands about God. And so therefore, our biblical faith is always grounded on our knowledge of the Most High. This is how we are people of faith. At, at times it seems that that the opponents of the Christian faith or, or atheists or agnostics or liberals or pluralists, they, they, they come to us with this, you, with this false understanding that you, that you Christians are blind. 
you Christians are, 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 are blindfully faithful. Like, your faith is blind. And to a certain extent, it's true. But our faith isn't completely blind. Our faith sees who God is and therefore sees in our souls the salvation of God in Jesus Christ for sinners like ourselves. And therefore, we give our lives to that faith because now we see God as he wants to be seen. So though our faith may not be visibly tangible or it has some ocular effects, it is profound. Because it's based on God's word. And I love how, how Calvin's catechism here, another one of the Reformed confessions of the 16th century, it's not too known in, in our modern culture, but Calvin's catechism of 1538 is beautifully written and it opens up. And I love this catechism because it's one of Calvin's early catechisms when he arrives at Geneva for, for the second time, and while he's there, he's, his purpose is to instruct the church in the depths of who God is because he's pulling the church away from the false religion that it once lived in. And as he opens this catechism, a catechism, once again, is, is a, a question-answer approach at times, on, on simple truths or on biblical truths in this case on, on how one can memorize it easier. And so catechisms were used uh, to teach children often in the church things about God or things about the church or doctrines about, about humanity and about theology and stuff. So that was adopted to teach adults as well. And as he opens up in his opening part of the catechism, uh, Calvin writes... No human being can be found, however barbarous or completely savage, untouched by some awareness of religion. And when he says religion, he's meaning the, the understanding or the knowledge of God. It is evident, consequently, that all of us have been created in order to acknowledge our Creator's majesty and to receive it and esteem it once acknowledged with all fear and awe and love and reverence. But leaving aside the ungodly who are bent upon one thing only to blot out of memory the notion of God sown in their hearts, those of us who claim to be godly must deem this fleeting life soon to fall into ruin to be nothing but a mediation upon immortality. Now, nowhere but in God can one find eternal immortal life. Hence, the chief concern and care of our belief, of our life, ought to seek God, to aspire to him with our whole heart, and to rest nowhere else but in him. And so what Calvin's basically saying here is our life's mission is to know God, to be preoccupied with God. One can say One's primary objective in life is theology. I know that there's a lot of nuances to that, but that's what we should be doing. Friends, we are Christians. What else are we going to dedicate our lives to? 
We can be doctors, we can be nurses, we can be mechanics, we can be chemists, we can be physicists, we can be history teachers, we can be all things, but at the core of our being must be this wondrous seeking after God as the deer pants for living water. So my soul. So friends, that is our mission here. And this becomes more profound for us when we understand and know that God, to know God, is not a cold sense or a cold seminary or a cold uh, classroom setting. To know God is deep because it is relational. Because God has come into relationship with us. That's why in Paul's case, it is the ministry of reconciliation. We have been restored to the right friendship. He, Abraham was a friend of God. and the, These are people that knew God, but were in relationship with him. And so are we as children of God. And so that's why we have a lot of familiar or family type of concepts in the Bible where God relates himself to his people as a father. What much more profound level of relationship do we, do we come across than that of the love of a father? Even though we do have relationships in marriage and, and, and in other aspects, this concept of a father is, is our primary objective. For instance, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, we read, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord of Israel, my firstborn son, referencing his people as his children. And Hosea, this is beautifully depicted in chapter 11, verse 1 and 3 and 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. In verse 3 he says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. In verse 4, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. That is God's depiction of fatherhood, protection, love, walking, guiding, feeding his people. He is God the Father. But not only his people of Israel, are uh, he, he considers himself father too. But look, in Psalm chapter 103, verse 13, we read, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who Fear him, not only the people of Israel, but all who call upon the name of the Lord or all who fear the Lord. In the New Testament, this is highlighted to the hundredth percent, to the hundredth power. Jesus is the primary agent as the Son. He is the Son of God the Father. And so therefore he tells and teaches his disciples, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. This is Matthew. This is the, 
the, the way Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. And he teaches them to approach God as Father. And this is beautiful because throughout the Sermon on the Mount, between uh, Matthew 5 and 7, there's a lot of uh, visual effects on fatherhood and how God takes care of his children. In Matthew chapter 6, and in the later verses between 21 through 31, uh, God, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples not to be anxious, not to worry about clothes, not to worry about food, not to worry, not to grow with anxiety, a huge dilemma we face in our modern state. People grow anxious for, for, a, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but Jesus teaches his disciples, don't worry. Jesus teaches his disciples, relax. Jesus teaches his disciples, there's no need for anxiety. As a matter of fact, the cure for anxiety, Jesus would claim, is we have a Father in heaven. For example, in verse 26, Jesus teaches that there is a heavenly Father who provides and for, that watches over us, provides for all of our needs, and guides us to all comfort. That is what the Father does. And so therefore Jesus says, do not be anxious. Paul takes this and runs with it as well as we can see in, in most of his epistles. In Romans chapter 1 verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, Colossians, Galatians, sorry, Galatians chapter 1 verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2, Colossians chapter 1 verse 2, etc., etc., etc. In all of these uh, greetings, he, he comes to the churches and writes these letters with the popular phrase that repeats itself time and time and time again, which states, grace and peace. From God, our Father. And so for Paul, who lived off his tent making and who would be shipwrecked and who would walk uh, in, hunger, in hunger at times and, and have at times, uh, for him, it was God the Father who provided grace and peace. The only way we will ever achieve or receive grace and feel grace upon us and the other the only time we will be in peace is when we realize where it comes from it comes from the father i like what the heidelberg catechism says of 1563 and i'm just saying these reformed confessions not for any other reason other than so you can see that hundreds of years ago people discovered this and and put this to teach the church this is for the education of the church uh, the church was brand new to the faith of, of, of what it was to be uh, an evangelical. That wasn't even a concept in the, in the 16th century. And so these confessions helped teach people to be Protestant, to be people of the book instead of people of tradition and instead of people of the church. And so these catechisms, like the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 says, in one of its questions, question 26 the question is posed, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? The answer, the eternal Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth 
and everything in them who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence is my God and Father because of his Christ the Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide for whatever I need for for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he is almighty God and desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Our God is faithful. Our God, like Moses and like Paul teaches and like Christ teaches, is merciful gracious, and loving. And this is the framework of how we study theology when we come to God. And most importantly, friends, he is not distant. He is close. He is our Heavenly Father. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful time that you've given us to study your word, to study who you are, to know you at the level that you want us to be known, that you want to be known. And so we approach you in prayer, looking up to heaven, knowing we can't do this on our own. Our marriage can't survive on, our, on its own. The, our parenthood can't survive on its own. We need the closeness of our Heavenly Father to guide us, to walk with us, and who alone can provide for us peace in times of anguish and grace when we feel like no one around us loves us. Thank you for saving sinners like us. Thank you for saving a sinner like myself and bringing me into your fold. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. We'll see you next week.